1: So welcome to new books in Southeast Asian Studies on iTunes via the web. I'm your host, Nick Cheesman, a fellow at the Australian National University's College of Asia and the Pacific. Today I'm joined on the sidelines of the biennial Asian Studies Association of Australia conference. Welcome to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies on iTunes via the web. I'm your host, Nick Cheesman, a fellow at the Australian National University's College of Asia and the Pacific. Today I'm joined on the sidelines of the biennial Asian Studies Association of Australia conference by Simon Creek, a lecturer in Southeast Asian history at the University of Melbourne to talk about his new monograph, Embodied Nation. Sport, Masculinity and the Making of Modern Laos, published in 2015 by the University of Hawaii Press. Simon, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks a lot, Nick. Can you give us uh, the backstory to the book? How did you end up writing a book about sport in Laos?
0: Well, it's a very good question. It goes back to my PhD dissertation, which I did here at ANU, and developing a topic for that. Dissertation. I was very eager, having spent the last few years before that, well, well, some years before that, living in in Laos to to write a history of development, sort of an intellectual history of development, which um, in the language that I now possess, but probably didn't possess then, you know, issues around you know modernity and progress and these sorts of things, and and that was simply as a result of having lived in in Laos. was this sort of early in the 2000s and um, this sort of area of development and just, uh, development work, development projects and this kind of thing were just ubiquitous uh, in the country. So I sort of arrived at ANU with, with this in mind, but I also had a background in history and specifically um, history of sport. I'd written a master's thesis at Melbourne Uni um, some years before that on um, the history of basketball in Victoria So I had some sort of knowledge of that field as well. It was actually my supervisor, um, Craig Reynolds, who suggested putting these two themes together um, and sort of focusing the study on development, if you like, a little more so by by focusing specifically on sport and physical culture. So in a sense, it sort of brought together two different strands in my own experience. And I suppose as the project proceeded, I must say at first I wasn't too sure about it, sport sort of has this side to it where people don't necessarily take it all that seriously um, in academia. Um, And I had to be convinced, I suppose, that doing something like this was a great idea because no one had done it before, on Southeast Asia at least, um, not in spite of that fact. And as I sort of proceeded through through the project and realised how I could do that kind of cultural and intellectual study that I was interested in doing through the motif of sport and, and through the motif of the body, um, I became very excited about it um, and was able to explore exactly
1: those issues um, which I had been interested in um, to start with. You just mentioned the motif of the body. Um, on page 10 of the book, uh, one statement s- struck me, it sprung out at me. You s- you have a theoretical paradox of sorts that while the, you say that while the physical realm is commonly conceived as the obverse of the cognitive, the concern with physicality is necessarily expressed through linguistic and cultural Mm. representation. Can you explain what you mean by that and why it matters for a study of sports.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a really good question, and it goes right to the heart of the approach. It's basically this sort of recognition that while studying the body and being interested in the way in which the body is imbued with meaning in this particular social, cultural and historical context, the main way, not the only way, but the main way that we can address that issue and that question is is through language. So it sort of flips that um, question around um, language and the body sort of upside down in in a sense that we can't simply observe the body in isolation from language and that sort of the meaning is, is communicated in the ways that the body is... It's spoken about and discussed. And this is particularly important for Southeast Asian history, for any history, I suppose, when you're working across languages and you become so sensitive and so attuned to the importance of language that in a sense it doesn't really matter what you're studying, language is going to be um, very important um, for what you're doing. And in a sense it's just applying that that logic to the body and, and that recognition that although we're discussing something that's physical and material... That the linguistic is, is going to be of fundamental
1: importance. You indicated already that you had an interest in Laos, uh, and then you brought that interest together with the prior research interests that you'd had in sport. It seems like there's still some effort on your part to uh, justify that interest with regards to the particular case study, because on page three of the book, you say Laos may seem an unlikely place to study the history of sports and related aspects of physical culture. You point out that it joins the Olympic movement very late in seventy nine. has never even come close to winning a medal, and that there's a general perception that people in that country are not man like or sportswoman-like, although actually sportsman-like is a more appropriate term for this book. So... Um, Can you say a little bit more about then how you justified this particular research interest in this particular case study? Presumably you could have gone to Thailand Mm. or Indonesia, countries which do have some sporting record on the international stage, and yet you stuck with Laos.
0: Yeah, look, I mean, I could have gone to those countries. Obviously I went to Laos because that was the country I was interested in and and learned the language for and and things, and I could have done this study um, in any country really and, and perhaps one day i'll do it on australia i mean i think a, a study of australia in a similar way would, would be very interesting but i think i sort of say at the at the end of the the book that laos is interesting in this way in particular precisely because you don't associate it with success in sport so there's this sense that you know um, powerful countries in in world sports, such as Australia or the United States. I mean, it seems fairly obvious that, that sport would be something to to study in these particular contexts, in sort of medium-sized countries, if that's what you want to call Thailand and um, Indonesia, in sporting terms at least. Um, there may be some interest. Um, these countries do win the occasional Olympic medal and sends the country mad and so on. But what I'm really interested in is the fact that this significance is is just as great... In a country where none of these things exist, I think it shows just how ubiquitous some of these ideas are. I mean, of course, the whole book, in a sense, is about the ways in which these ideas have developed historically in the case of Laos through the particular um, history of Laos through the 20th century and the various um, different political regimes and, and social and cultural influences that have been experienced there. But you're right, I mean, you could apply this country, this study or this approach to, to other countries come up with a slightly different approach. But Laos is interesting um, um, precisely because um, it shows just how ubiquitous these ideas are if they are, um, you know, coming up in these very interesting and profound ways in a country where no one would ever expect them to be. Before we turn
1: to the contents of specific chapters, I- one other key term that I'd like to signal and, and ask you about, and that's masculinity. So masculinity is in the subtitle mm. of the book, and it's, it's manifest throughout the contents of the book. Practically every image has masculine images of physicality, of physical education. The cover of the book shows the, a, a line of young men marching shirtless out of a physical education institute. What's the place of gender in the story you tell and why I concentrate on men in sport?
0: Oh, I'm glad you asked that um,
1: as well. And again, it
0: sort of um, connects sort of the intellectual interests as well as my own personal um, interests in, in some ways. Look, I think when you study sport, the first thing you notice, or perhaps some people don't notice, and perhaps this has been the problem in the past, it's, it's just so obvious and so um, evident that you don't notice it. But, you know, with a sort of, if you have antennae sort of attuned to gender and these sorts of things, the first thing you notice about sport is just how dominated by men it is. It's not to say that only men take part in sport, and I make the point very clearly in the book that, that as in many countries, um, Lao women have done better than men in international competition. So it's not that women don't play sport, it's around how sport creates certain representations of the body, which are often, um, in fact, overwhelmingly images of the male body. So uh, although women are, and this, again, is something that you'll observe in most societies in, in slightly different ways, perhaps, although women are certainly playing sport, it's often considered to be, perhaps not considered to be, but... Um, it's often the images of men which, which dominate in, in coverage and how it's understood. So around um, themes and motifs of, of strength, of um, you know, muscles, and these sorts of things are valorised as masculine qualities um, and not necessarily um, as feminine qualities. And for that reason, you know, there's different sorts of games and sports that, that men and women play. I mean, and this also is observable. In different societies so there's that aspect I mean sitting down and deciding to do this topic and realizing that most of the people I was reading about in the sources most of the pictures I was looking at um, were men and taking account of this and asking from the outset um, what this might mean for the study the second aspect of that which sort of LinkedIn very nicely with that, in a sense, was my own background as a, as a sportsman, I suppose, you know, playing football, Australian rules football, um, as, a, as a kid, um, as a teenager, and as a young adult, and particularly, I suppose, when I started playing football as an adult in my early 20s, it was probably around the time that I was doing my Masters on Basketball, um, and becoming very aware of just how sort of masculine and sort of hyper-masculine a football club could be. And I suppose I couldn't get that image out of my mind. I mean, it didn't really figure in my earlier um, research. It didn't perhaps need to. It wasn't really as relevant. But um, I found that I couldn't really get these images and these ideas out of my mind as I was doing the study. And, of course, we're talking about a different national context um, but I found that when I was doing the research in Laos and I sort of joined a, um, a group of guys who was playing playing um, soccer, football, um, through that time to, you know, kind of as a research thing, but also as a social thing to, to meet different people and, and so on. And I found that all these sort of images from my experience playing football in Australia were equally true, perhaps even more so in this... Um, in this environment in Laos. So sort of putting all those things together, it was just clear from quite early on that um, men and masculinity were going to be a big part of this study.
1: Well, the the first chapter of the book doesn't begin with football, rather it begins with an Indigenous sport. Uh, you go back to the colonial period before coming forward, tracing it step by step up to the present day. Can you explain why you chose this Sport uh, to begin your topic, to begin the book, and um, talk us through some of the different periods in which this sport features in um, a political and cultural discussion around what it means to be loved.
0: Sure. Um, yeah, there's a story behind this as well, funnily enough. Um, the, the sport you're referring to is tiki, um, which literally means hit, ball, the ball is called ki, and the um, the... Word for hit is d. So it's it's a hockey. It's a sort of traditional hockey game. Um, Probably when I I set out to write this chapter, I wanted to write a chapter to begin the book on um, on indigenous games. You know, in recognition that um, Western sports, as 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 they're known, um, in in Laos by the name the word gila, um, were not the earliest or original form of um, physical activity or. Um, physical games um, to demonstrate that these arrived into a, a context in which um, there were already things that looked like sport or um, some kind of physical competition. so I wanted to look at some you know have a chapter on, on these and to sort of try and understand how one um, one set of practices indigenous practices in a sense perhaps evolved into what we might understand to be um, modern sport. And I found quite early on as I was doing this, that that um, this was a fairly naive approach, I suppose. And that what I, I realised when I was looking at this game, key in particular, was that it was very hard to do justice to this sort of idea that I had of sort of moving from a traditional to a modern sort of paradigm. In the sense that the the accounts of Tiki themselves were, were created out of the colonial encounter and were themselves a product of that sort of modernising um, impulse that, that came with um, colonialism. So I suppose as I sort of rethought this, it became instead of being a study of um, Tiki itself and whether this was a traditional game or, or, or a modern sport or, or, or that kind of question, which is an interesting question in sports studies and kind of a perennial question, it sort of shifted from that question to more one of how has Diki been understood um, over time and how does that fit with how we understand um, modern sports to be or how modern sports are understood in, in, in the case of Laos. And as I did that, I, you know, it was, a good, it was a good sport to do this with or a good practice to do this with because um, a number of anthropologists, a number of um, French travellers, um, Laos scholars as well, um, had sort of turned their mind, turned their attention to Diki at various stages throughout the 20th century. So that sort of became the source material and um, the, the the question became the epistemological question of how that was understood and how, um, in that way, Takir can be understood within the broader context of an emerging sort of proto-national identity, if you like, um, within Laos.
1: Why were those... Um administrator and um, et- ethnographers interested in this game. What drew them to it?
0: Well, it's interesting. I mean, it was it was tied it was tied uh, very intimately to um, the the history of a very famous and important um, Buddhist pagoda in in um, Vientiane, in the capital city, um, Tatoo, which is the, the Great Stupa. Um, this is the national symbol. The most important stupa or, or pagoda in um in the country, um and had already emerged sort of in in the colonial period as kind of an, a national symbol. So this game was sort of um had been played at at Tatluang um, for very different reasons in the past, but I think this drew people's attention. Um, to it, two ethnographers in particular, French ethnographers, um, around the turn of the century. Um, and one of them, um, in particular, Alfred Raquet, um, had sort of um, produced this wonderful account of an actual game that was played. I think it was 1902 from memory, or perhaps 1900. Um, and, you know, it sort of created. Both of these eth- ethnographers or um, travellers, really, um, created this image of Decay as a national game. Um, and I suppose what drew me to these accounts was the way that even in 1900, um, these, these Frenchmen were able to sort of think about this idea of um, Decay as, an, as a national game. In this kind of modern framework, if you like, um, a modern proto-nationalist Framework in which this sort of cultural relic from the past could reflect some sort of um, um, continuity with the the grandeur of of, um, Laotian kingdoms um, of the past. Now, if that was all, then probably wouldn't have been worth um, a chapter or an extended analysis. But what happened after that is that um, different people through different periods, through the 30s and then through the 40s and into the 50s, approached Diki in roughly similar ways, I mean, but there's very different sorts of um, people. they are very different sorts of scholars. In the 1930s, there was um, Nui Ape, which, who was a, a Lao teacher and scholar who had trained in, in France um, and, and sort of a, a, budding, a budding scholar among a small number who sort of came back to sort of document the Lao past, and he also wrote about the Tatluang Festival, the, the big festival, Bun Tatluang, which takes place at Tathalong every year. And in that context, he also wrote about Diki. But he wrote about it in quite a different way. He was was building it up as this sort of Lao tradition, um, but he also wrote about it in a way that really emphasised the the, the manhood, the masculinity um, of the players. He talked about the muscles. He talked about their strength. He talked about their aggression, um, which sort of introduced this new um, aspect um, to accounts of the game. And then moving into the 1940s, um, famous French anthropologists who worked on, on Laos started to discuss the game, beginning with um, Paul Lévy in uh, 1942. He published the research in 1952, a very detailed ethnographic account of, of the game. And then Charles Archambault, the um, wonderful, well, sort of unrivaled, unparalleled um, um, documenter of, of Lao ritual and tradition. Um, through the 1950s, uh, also wrote about it, but in, in broader terms, not just in Biang Chan, but in different um, parts of the country. And without going into every detail, you can sort of chart the development of this sort of national narrative through this game, something that's uniquely Lao. Um, which by the end of this period in the 1950s, um, Lao had actually become a, a country and a nation, an independent nation, um, although for most of this period, it had been um, a colony. So I suppose to go back to that original point, rather than sort of locating tradition in this, um, these accounts of, of this particular game, what I found was um, a particularly kind of modern project of trying to um, create a, a story around a piece of national culture, um, which was sort of being deployed in the name or in the service of... of um, empire originally, and then, and then the nation-state, um, which sort of distinguishes it rough, quite, quite dramatically, I think, and this is the, the basic argument, quite dramatically from, um, you know, this idea of a traditional game that evolves and develops into a
1: modern game. You've already mentioned the 40s and, and the early 50s, and Chapter 2 deals with sport and colonial, the colonial encounter in these periods. In particular, you're interested in the National Renewal Project under the Vichy regime and how that project was exported across the French Empire in that period. Can you say something about that project first of all and then what specific form did it take in Indochina and in Laos?
0: Yeah, well, so this is um, a sort of fascinating um, product, I suppose, of the, the collaboration of Vichy regime um, in France. Um, under Marshal Bertin. Um, there was a sort of, was a um, ultra-conservative sort of movement for national renewal, known as the National Revolution. Um, and one aspect of this, there were many aspects to it, but one aspect of it was sort of rebuilding the, the French body, if you like, of the French man in particular, um, after the humiliations of defeat um, by Germany. Um, and, you know, previous, earlier defeats, um, so, um, and so there was quite a, quite a, um, dense and, um, detailed, uh, national, um, sort of bureaucracy that was set up to promote sport and youth activities. Um, it wasn't stated in the title or anything, but overwhelmingly this was for men. Um, there were female versions, um, but these were very different activities. They set up these um, these particular um, sport and youth schools um, according to ideology called hebertism, um, which is sort of named after a particular physical trainer from that period. Um, and the idea being that, you know, France's honour and France's strength would be um, regained through um, the male body in particular, by rebuilding the male body. Now, this was more or less exported um, to the colonies. There's a terrific book that I I quote um, in that chapter um, by um, Eric Jennings on Vichy in the Tropics, which um, talks about how it was exported to a number of different um, parts of the French Empire. And one of the places he looks at um, is Indochina. There's another book. An important book on on that process as well. So I won't go into that in great detail, but but those those institutions, um, national institutions in France, are basically replicated um, in Indochina, um, particularly in the the main centres of Hanoi and Saigon, but also in Pantiat in um, southern um, Vietnam, southern Annam as it was, um, and that's where. Um, um, uh, physical education and youth school was established to do the same kind of training, to train um, physical education instructors um, and to promote um, some of these sporting events which were more or less lifted from the French um, context. So they kind of created a, an Indo-Chinese version of the Tour de France, and the Tour de Andochin. Um, a, a football competition, the, the, the Bataan Cup between um, the five different territories, of um, Indochina and many other um, events and so forth. Now, Laos was a small part of this. I mean, Laos was a relatively remote, the smallest of the five um, territories, and relatively remote. Um, but all of these ideas sort of flowed through in in one way or another. I mean, they were adapted. Some things were um, were enhanced. Some things were dropped. Um, but to the extent that the Lao national renovation, which I'll come back to it in a moment, um, was largely realised through the body and, again, once again, through, through the male body. Now, this Lao national renovation, other um, scholars have written about this, it's a very important time in the development of sort of proto-nationalism um, in Laos, sort of a colonial form, a colonial sanctioned form of um, nationalism. And this was basically aimed at um, buttressing the Lao Against the sort of irredentist forays of the Greater Thai project through that time, under um, People's Songkram, um, and and that's that's well known in, in the literature. What was interesting to research here was just the extent to which the Lao body was drawn into these um, these projects, and it, once again, mostly the Lao male body, although the female body was also um, sort of. Um, a vessel, if you like, through which this, was, um, this, this project was, was carried out. Um, but women were represented very differently um, and um, only played certain types of sports, basketball or tennis, for example. Whereas men um, were subject to many of these same um, institutions which were set up in Indochina um, and, in, and in France, you know, physical education, training, schools, um, <clears throat> various sports societies and sports clubs and that kind of thing. And this was a highly militarized um, movement, which would be very important um, in the years to come, um, in the sense that you know there's lots of marching involved. Um, there was sort of a highly regimented um, um, day or program within these um, within these you know youth and physical education. Schools they incorporated um, certain local dimensions to it, such as meditation and and so on. And in some ways, these sort of intersected very very well with um, existing notions of of discipline um, from um, sort of Buddhist um, heritage among young men in particular. So these these young men were kind of receiving similar messages through um, traditional Lao um, experiences of. Um, ordaining and, and spending time in temples, and then joining these um, these sport and um, youth and physical education um, schools for, for short periods um, in order to go off and, and teach these subjects at um, school. I suppose just to say one more thing about that: the, the important thing was it goes back to to this idea that it was a, a renovation project for this. Um, Petit Patrie, as it was sort of known, um, a small country of, of Laos, in order to sort of um, buttress Laos as a sort of um, national, proto national entity, and that this could be carried out um, through the body. So, so it made the body a uh, very meaningful part of that process.
1: You've already mentioned the, some of the militaristic aspects of the training, and in the following chapter, Opposite from page 87, the first figure in the chapter shows images of young men marching with their arms raised in what is unmistakably a Nazi-style salute. Now, seeing those images, my immediate response was, this must have been a performance a parade in the Vichy period. And then when I looked below, I saw it's in the 1950s, I was taken aback. Um, can you talk to how we see the persistence of militarism in the nineteen mm-hmm. fifties, and specifically the intersection between militarism and sport during this period of Russian autonomy mm-hmm. if not independence?
0: Yeah, us. I mean this this is a a really important question because it it it, it shows just how important those Vichy um, programs were in introducing new forms of regimentation and practice, um, particularly for groups of young men. Um, The Nazi salute that you refer to was embraced through the Vichy era, so through the Second World War period. Um, Of course, it's instantly recognisable, and as you say unmistakably, the um, Nazi salute, but it wasn't referred to as such. It was referred to as the Olympic salute, and this was the um, formal name for it through the 30s up until the... um, the Nazi Olympic Games of 1936 when it became problematic for for fairly obvious reasons. Um, Through these, you know, Vichy France and then Vichy Indochina and and Vichy-era Laos, um, the Olympic salute, which looks remarkably like the Nazi salute, um, was retained throughout this period as an expression of Olympic values formally um, through the Vichy era and it is striking as, as you say, I think what 's even more striking is that it was retained after the Second World War when you would have thought people had would stop doing such a salute, even if it was called um, the Olympic salute but indeed this was um, used in the um, in the you know the shield for for the the school that was set up through this period to carry on these sort of vichy programs, a youth and physical education school, it was, it was used on, on that, um, the Lao youth shield. So there was no trying to sort of brush this under the carpet. It was really considered to be a very important part of this sort of um, nascent sort of national spirit, um, you know, reflecting these values around regimentation, um, order, um, the uprightness, the loyalty, the solidarity um, of the male body. Um, and, and the pictures you describe, which I'm looking at right now, are really striking, particularly because there's large groups of people marching um, together and all of those um, images um, or all of those themes really come through um, in that image. More broadly on, on, on this chapter, I mean, it really is around that transition from what was a colonial um, set of practices to something more ambiguous through this period this sort of um, period of the late 1940s and the early 1950s through which Laos gained its independence sort of um, in a number of stages, sort of episodically, uh, if you like. And what's really important here is that um, what had had previously been um, very clearly um, imperial and colonial practices which had um, identified some kind of benefit in, in, in promoting a form of Lao patriotism now became much more um, closely associated with the nation uh, of Laos itself. And, and what, that, what that means is very important because it, it, it means that as Laos was coming of age, as they like to say, um, through that period, it was coming of age as this highly kind of militarized and masculine. Um, state. And, and this cultural dimension of uh, militarization that I try and um, explore in this chapter, particularly through the photographs actually, which I was very fortunate to get um, in quite large number from um, the French uh, military media archives in, in Paris. Um, they have a tremendous collection and they really do kind of open up a, a whole new way of doing the history of this period Um, sort of through visual culture.
1: I agree that the text and images work very well together and the combination of both your analysis uh, and your talking through of the historical story alongside those images really conveys very powerfully to the reader. The message that you're delivering about the relationship between militarism and sport in that chapter, uh, we should keep moving on and I'd like to turn to chapters four and five and there we go um, into the period of really modern theatrics with the emergence of new forms of state power and expressions of state power as told in chapter four through the establishment of national games and the running of national games in 1961 and 1964 can you say something about those games and maybe something also about the person who founded them and the reasons they had for establishing.
0: Yeah, well, it, it, it flows on very nicely from the chapter we've just been discussing, because um, the, th- the third chapter on this period, immediately after the Second World War, um, goes into some detail in discussing this. Um, and a lot of the pictures that we've discussed already uh, were taken from this um, um, National School of um, sport and physical education, which was actually housed in the Tatluang, the, the, the national um, symbol, and the, the you know that very important national monument. Now, the director of that particular school was the person you refer to, um, Lieutenant, later Colonel, later General Pumi who was the, the dominant right-wing military figure through the early 1960s. Um, in Laos. Now he started out, well he didn't start out, but, but one of his earlier um, roles was as director of this school um, that was housed at Tatluang um, in the early 1950s and then by the end of the decade um, he had risen through the ranks and um, he was the deputy prime minister, um, he was the minister of defence, he was the most powerful, um, most ruthless military figure in the country. Now, he was also a boxer in a, you know, as, a, as a youth and seems to have had a, a particular interest in, in sports and the formative dimensions of, of sport and how that could be used in these sort of military ways, in, in military training and, and various other things. And as, so as well as being the defence minister um, in this period in the early 1960s, he was also the minister for sport and youth. And in that capacity, um, he established these national games in 1961. Now, these these games, in many ways, to sort of foreshadow what I will speak about next, were, were based in some ways on the Southeast Asia Peninsula Games, which were founded in 1959 in, in Thailand, and we'll come back to those in a moment and, and, and as, um place in them, I'm sure. But another thing to note about um, Pumin Oswan, as a general, the most powerful military figure in the country, a right-wing figure, um, who, who who enjoyed great deal of, a great deal of patronage from the U.S. military um, was also related through marriage to the um, to the the dictator of um, Thailand, um, Field Marshal Sarit Thanarat. So you know there are all these sort of connections pointing towards you know, militarism, right wing, um, U.S. patronage, corruption. And, and so on, and, and, and sort of put all these things together and you, you get a picture of um, Pumi Nosawan, sort of known to be a very a ruthless sort of military figure through that period. Now, in 1961, he established these um, national games and the irony of these national games, or the, the central irony of them, in a sense, was that they um, aimed to produce an image of national unity at a time when Laos was absolutely riven with disunity. This was the Cold War, um, Humi was a, a right-wing general enjoying the support of the, the US military. He, he enjoyed his position um, by virtue of that support. Um, the US had been involved in, in various um, matters in the late 1950s which had um, brought the right to power in Um And as, as a result of this, you could probably find no... Person less suited in the country to to building a unified national state. However, despite that disunity and despite his role in, in creating it, um, he he founded this um, these national games as a means of promoting national unity, and and the second main theme of the games was national progress. Now, this sort of goes back to various images around sport and around um, the the body and the way that it's uh, represented um in um, through sporting events and and, and, and in images, and um, these were the, these were the central two, two themes. Now what was interesting about that or what I try and develop in this chapter is that, in a sense this was there was kind of two things going on at the same time. in, in one sense, this event, which was the largest you know sporting event that had been held in, in Laos up until this point, you know, bringing together all of the different provinces around the around the country, including provinces which were actually ruled at that time by the left, by the B'tedlau. Um In 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 doing this, one aspect of it, um, one of the the benefits, I suppose, for for Pumi was this idea of um, you know a big spectacle to to reinforce um, you know his state power. It, it, it was a Deputy Prime Minister, but the most influential figure in the government, um, as a way of kind of asserting and, and, and consolidating and reinforcing um, state power by, by presenting, by representing, by, by um, giving physical form, if you like, to these themes of national unity um, and progress. But what also struck me as I was reading these accounts was just how sort of similar it was to um, a much older form of sort of performative power, um, that we're very familiar with in, in Southeast Asian studies and history, in the form of the sort of theatre state that's, you know, famously discussed by Clifford Geertz. And I won't go in too deeply into the, the details here, but but what I what I sort of develop in the chapter is that this isn't simply a, a way of reinforcing um, state power, um, you know, through legitimacy and, and so on. But also um, a means of s- displaying his status as the most sort of powerful and as I argue sort of towards the end of the chapter the most modern figure
1: at least in his self-perception in, in Lao politics maybe a word or two about what happened to him and to the games before we go on to the final period and...
0: well um, and and the other the other
1: chapter also
0: um, yeah look he so, so the first games you know, doing Lao history, you're often limited by, by sources. I didn't have a particularly good account of the first games. In fact, I had no account of the first games um, in Vientiane. I had a very nice account from newspaper articles of the second games in, in Savannakhet, which were very important because they were that was um Nouthuan's hometown, and they were the um, the second games were, were held there. Um, immediately after that, virtually, you know, within months, he was deposed. Uh, well, no, first there was an attempted coup. Which, which attempted to depose him from power and, and after that um, he was deposed and, and went into exile um, in Thailand. and I sort of make the point and I, I hope it sort of resonates in the book I make the point that um, in a sense that the games were a vehicle through which for which um, Pumi could um, display his status in, in that sense the games collapsed. Um, in the years following his, his exile and, and were no longer conducted. Um, the other chapter you asked about was the chapter that follows, which is um, Chapter 5 on um, the, on the um, Southeast Asia Peninsula Games and the Games of the New Emerging Forces. And without going into great detail there, I'm really looking at the way that Lao teams participated in regional sport um, as a means of asserting different ideas of what the Lao nation were at that time. And these two ideas were basically this um, royalist version of Laos, which was under the military through um, that earlier period that I've already discussed and later under a civilian royalist government. Um, and then the other side in the Lao civil war, the Patet Lao, the, the, the communist side, and how they actually joined um, a regional event for the first time in 1966, the Games of the New Emerging Forces of Asia, which were held in um, Phnom Penh. And, and, and through that chapter, I sort of um, I dissect, if you like, how um, participating in these different events situated different um, iterations of the Lao Nation within
1: the region. You've mentioned sources, so I can't help but ask you briefly, could you say something about the archival, ethnographic and other sources you used? And you mentioned difficulties in obtaining materials and researching last, so I'm sure. A yeah. Business would be interested in this.
0: Yeah, look, it's a, it's, a, it's a really important question um, around just how we do um, historical research of, of some of this period, at least. I mean, the colonial period is reasonably well taken care of, um, in the colonial archives. Um, and, but there's a, it's quite a large gap from the end of the colonial period. And the, the the last few years of the colonial period are pretty mixed in terms of sources there. And up until the um, socialist period, the socialist period from 1975 comes with different challenges, but the the biggest challenge is that period sort of from the um, late forties through to 1975, because when the, the, the um, People's Revolutionary Party took power in 1975. They more or less um, closed off that chapter archivally as well as um, politically and, and so on. So the the, the the book draws on a pretty wide range of sources. Um, you know, Rather than dwelling on, on this as a problem, I, I sort of embraced it as an opportunity, I suppose, while well, I tried to. Um, so I've drawn on, as you, as you sort of mentioned before, a number of really rich images that I was able, able to locate, um, pretty traditional sources like newspapers and so on, um, pamphlets and, and, and these sorts of things where possible, the accounts of travel writing and ethnography that I mentioned before um, in that first chapter um, and so on. Um, for the uh, socialist period after 1975, which we're probably going to move on to momentarily, um, I was very fortunate to be able to access um, archives there um, they come with their own problems socialist archives are not necessarily um, the most reliable in a sort of traditional sense source um, but I tried to use them um, in a sort of to read them against themselves if you like um, there's different forms of rhetoric and um, statements of of rule um, and yeah I mean I think I think it did present uh, opportunities in this way, but using a very wide range of um, sources, in, mostly in Lao and
1: um, French. Well, you've already moved us into the remaining period with a couple of references to 75 and the socialist period. Can you briefly explain, uh, these remaining chapters, how do you address this period in comparison to earlier mm. So how does notion of socialist modernity and revolutionary physical culture compared to the practices in the preceding periods you've already discussed?
0: I mean, it's a, it's a two-part answer in some ways. Um, in many ways, the ideas that were developed through the 1940s, in particular, 40s and 50s and 60s, continue in, to be discussed in, in very similar language. Um, The body remains a very important sort of metaphor for the development of a a national um, body politic. Um, And similar forms of language, similar ideas around associating um, individual strength, the need for um, physical training um, and so on with um, national development, um, in this case in a a sort of socialist um, guise. But then there are a number of important departures, which I suppose are, um, are more important in some ways. I think the, the first main difference is that, in some ways, and I try and develop this in both chapter chapters six and seven, I suppose. Um, in some ways, physicality becomes a defining metaphor of the regime itself. So, you know, we we're talking earlier about the importance of language. Um, in a sense the language of physicality works its way into um, the way that the regime sees itself the way the regime promotes its um, task of building a, a socialist building socialism for a start um, and building new socialist people so so we see this kind of physical language um, almost you know ubiquitously throughout um, these sources. And that's sort of what I mean by turning sources upside down and, and, and reading them in, in this different um, way. Um, and then there are some more practical differences as well. And I suppose this moves on to more specifically chapter um, seven, where I look at um, rather than mass sport. So chapter Chapter six r- relates to those ideas of how language is imbued with these ideas of physicality and these different forms of physical culture um, brought to bear. Um, chapter seven looks more specifically at spectator sport and, and what we might call elite level sport, such as it could be um, called that. Um, and in particular, the way that um, sporting events were used as a way to promote the values of um, the of the socialist um, regime. So around sort of you know revolutionary spirit and that kind of thing but also some more specific areas such as equality um, among equality between the sexes. Um, so you start to see greater attention, more explicit attention being paid to women in sport, um, which is an important um, distinction given this earlier um, tendency to focus almost exclusively um, on men. Um, and then, I suppose the great moment in Laos sport also occurs through this period. The other, one of the other major themes through this through this period is the way that these um, sporting events can draw Laos into and express um, membership of the socialist world. And of course, the great event in terms of sport in the socialist world occurred exactly at this time, at the nineteen eighty. Um, Moscow Olympic Games, and this was the first time that that Laos, that Laos joined the um, the Olympic movement um, under a great deal of um, advice and support um, from from the Soviets. Um, and they they went to the, the Moscow Games, sent to a huge team. I mean, almost half of the total number of athletes to have represented Laos at, at the um, Olympic Games since then. Went to those games around a team of around eighteen or twenty people, so a very large team. Of course, they weren't expected to win or, or do very well. The important thing here was being um, a member of that socialist world um, and <clears throat> drawing on some of those some of those um, sort of socialist values, I suppose, around you know notions of democracy, such as they were um, under Marxist Leninism. Um, around ideas of, um, of um, ethnic solidarity um, and so on.
1: Okay, so you talk about how the team wasn't expected to win. It was participation and solidarity and other things that counted for success. Um, this point really ties in with a point that you make right at the end of the book in the final chapter, which is concentrated on the... Southeast Asian Games that Laos hosts in 2009, where you talk about the malleability of what counts as success. And to quote, you said that because of this malleability, it would be a mistake to view the history of Laos sport and physical culture through the prism of failure. Can you expand on that point a bit and maybe tie it back in very briefly with the 2009 Games that you discuss in the final chapter before we close?
0: Perhaps I'll start with the 2009 Games because, in a sense, that's the sort of the apogee of the Lao story or Lao history of, of sport, um, of participation in international sport in particular at these Games in 2009. Um, this is the first major sporting event that Laos could host. Thousands of athletes, um, the 11 countries of ASEAN plus East Timor, participating um, you know, a major, major undertaking. Now, this had to be funded through um, Chinese aid um, for the the stadium and, and various um, other aspects of it. And there was a great deal of criticism around this. But in the end, um, you know, the athletes came through after a great deal of coaching and provision of um, equipment, and and also the way in which the games are set up to to enable the host team to do well. And they won, you know, unexpectedly they won 33 gold medals. You know, this is unheard of. I think previously their best had been um, five, and that was in the previous SEA Games when they were already in training for their own SEA Games. So this was really quite extraordinary um, and demonstrated, if you like, the only moment in which Lao history has sort of succeeded according to these, you know, most basic criteria for success um, in sport in terms of, you know, medals and, and so on. Um, so what I mean by malleability in a sense is that this is utterly the exception to the rule. Um, it's a very interesting case study. Um, the games themselves were a huge event in Laos and really worthy of um, greater attention and I hope to come back to them in, in further work. Um, but, you know... In every other event, in every other, um, whether it's in Moscow in 1980, whether it was in the SEA Games through the 19 the C up the Southeast Asia Peninsula Games in the 1960s, what, whatever you're talking about, in these kind of um, conventional measures of success, according to those, Laos is just not succeeding. So I suppose malleability comes back to well, how do you how do you define success in a sense? Or, or what is the meaning, what is the, the underlying meaning and significance um, of sport? And I suppose the answer to that, you know, to, to um, summarise the, the, all of the preceding chapters, is that it can be sort of sport and the, 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 um, the way in which you talk about sport, the way in which you, you, you participate, military training, physical education, all of these different sorts of um, techniques of the body, ways of developing the body, um, uh, can be applied in all sorts of ways to the development um, and the modernity um, and the emergence, I suppose, of, of of the nation. Now you saw this in the sort of colonial iteration of Laos, in the royalist iteration of Laos that we discussed, um, and in the socialist iteration of Laos, and most recently, as demonstrated by the the exception to the rule, the the um, the, the, the SEA Games in a sort of post-socialist developmentalist Laos. I mean, wh- whoever's in charge at a particular time, whichever regime is overseeing um, sport, is talking about sport, is developing sport through, through that period and, and physical culture more broadly, um, will find some very, very important and sort of um, core value in it that, that is tied to the development um, of the nation state, and I suppose the the one thing to kind of finish off on that is is the um, the flip side of that, which I um, developed throughout the book, but more explicitly in, in the conclusion, is that naturally this has a, a flip side to it, if you like, in a in a country that has almost always been an authoritarian state of some kind. Um, not always, I shouldn't I shouldn't generalise too much. Period much of the Royalist period was not um authoritarian. <clears throat> but but over the course of its history, most most of that period, most of that time, Laos has been under authoritarian colonial, now socialist rule. Um, these ideas around the malleability of sport that demonstrate the malleability of sport and physical culture have have often operated to reinforce um, state power. And Um, I suppose that's a sort of a a sobering reflection, if you like, on on what the the flip side of um, success defined in these ways might be.
1: It's great to have a guest who ties everything together so neatly. Thank you very much for doing that, Simon. I'd like to turn and ask you a final question, which is, what are you working on now? What can you look forward to next?
0: Um, Well, I'm I'm working on two main things, but uh, I suppose, and they both come out of... A similar area, um, you know, the different ideas that are developed in this book. But um, the, the main one that, that's keeping me busy at the moment is the history of the Southeast Asian Games. So this was originally founded as the Southeast Asia Peninsula Games and I look at that event um, and Laos's involvement in it in um, Chapter 5 as we were discussing earlier in, in this book. So I'm sort of expanding my um, focus on Laos to sort of a regional um Level of analysis to look at the way in which sport has sort of been used, um, different meanings around sport and this specific event. So, so more specific in this case on a particular event rather than sport and physical culture in general. But how this event, which has been conducted now for nearly sixty years, every second year in different parts of Southeast Asia, has operated as a way of, um, I suppose, shaping regional relations um, in in the region and presenting and producing certain ideas of the region. Um, Of course, this is a a period that begins with decolonisation and the Cold War, an incredibly um, dynamic but also sort of tumultuous period. Um, Coming right up until now, um, where the Cold War is long gone and the new set of challenges um, presents itself to the region, the interesting thing about this event is it began before this ASEAN, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, um, and has developed in some ways parallel and intersecting ways with it. So that's one. That's the main project at the moment. And the other um, main area that I am continue to work on is um, history of um, supposed political culture in Laos, sort of broadly defined. So rather than focusing particularly on the body and the ways we can read some of these um, aspects of political culture through the body, focusing on political culture more broadly particular through particularly through language um, that's one project that's underway but a broader a broader project for which is sort of um, in very early stages uh, will I think eventually take me to
1: some kind of history of the, the revolution in Laos. Plenty going on, and I'm sure that uh, many listeners will be interested, especially having read your book, if they haven't done so already, to, to be following what it is that you'll be doing in the next few years. So, Simon Creek, thanks again for speaking with me today about embodied notions, sport, masculinity, and the making of modern arts. Thanks, Nick. And thanks to everyone for listening. I do hope you'll join me again for another meeting with an author on new books in Southeast Asian Studies. And if you haven't done so already, check out the archive of podcasts on the New Books Network (laughs) (laughs) site.